I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. So I just finished talking with Robert Costa, the Washington Post national political reporter and political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. The call was perfectly timed, and that doesn't happen often in life, because just this morning, a bunch of publications, including the Washington Post and Costa, were taken off the Trump blacklist. So I had a newly freed Bob Costa ready to talk about Trump and the Republican Party and Congress and more. And he did. As you likely know, Bob is basically the preeminent political reporter on the Republican Party. He used to work at the National Review, and he's built what must be a crazy Rolodex of everyone even tangentially connected to the party. He reports on Democrats also, but he breaks a lot of news on the Republican side. We talked about what it's been like to cover Trump, even with the blacklist, and what his campaign means for the Republican Party. I don't want to give away the whole conversation, so for now, just two words, wild and weird. I really liked the end of the conversation, too. Bob started to talk about how the wildness and weirdness of this campaign was actually making his job of reporting more the way he'd want it to be, less scripted, less corporate. I really got the sense that he's having fun, that he just loves old-fashioned reporting, calling people, seeing people, asking questions, getting answers or not getting answers, but true reporting, rather than having every moment manicured and staged. For everything else you can say about Trump, and we know there's a lot, he certainly is changing the rules around a lot of institutions. Reporting is just another one. And Bob was really insightful on that and more. But before we begin the conversation, some questions. Who will win the White House? What can we expect going into the presidential debates? And what about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now here's my conversation with Bob Costa. You are in the news today. Big headlines. Uh, the Washington Post, including you, of course, um, you are off the Trump blacklist. You are back, Bob. I, I imagine that's got We're a, back. Yeah, you're back. It's a long it's, time coming. <laughs> it's, a, it's a load off, I imagine. I mean, it's logistically, it's, it's, that's the biggest relief here because you go to these events and if you're a blacklisted member of the press, you can't sit in the press pen. So you're, you're, you're lugging around your equipment or sometimes you can't bring your equipment in. And Trump does, does uh, draw big crowds. So one of the problems you have at these events is you have to wait for three, four hours in line, sweating with everyone else and as they're selling Trump pins in for everyone to pick up. And, and it's just not a great environment when you're really there to work. Uh, so now we're back in the press area. But I think the thing people don't realize is that you know, the, yeah, the Post has been banned. So has uh, BuzzFeed, Politico, and all these other outlets. But that doesn't stop you from actually reporting. You know, so we, I, I've been able to report ever since we got banned. It's just haven't, haven't been able to easily cover Trump events. 
Yeah. So, so what does I mean? Literally, for those of us who who you know kind of haven't been blacklisted, I mean, we're operating in a much more clean fashion than you know guys like you are, Bob. Um, you know, we've never been put on a blacklist. I mean, what is it? What is it? What did you? You know, what happened? And does it become? Is it more? It's more logistical than substantive. Are you, are you still kind of able to get the substance of what you're wanting to report? I think so. I, I think it's a little more dramatic in the telling of it all. I mean, yeah. even the phrase blacklist, yeah. oh, blacklist. But I think it's been really unfortunate because we should have free press in this country that could cover a nominee and any politician without any kind of hindrance. And I think Marty Barron, the Post editor, issued a great statement really clarifying that this was unnecessary and offensive from the start. Uh, but I, I found a way to navigate around it. It's like anything in life. You find different ways to still do your job. And so I've been still working Trump advisors, Trump associates, Trump friends. You really look at the Trump network in its entirety, and you, and you think to yourself, even if I can't get direct press access to the candidate. And Trump used to be pretty uh, accessible to the Post in terms of granting interviews, not always long interviews, but he'd give interviews. Bob Woodward and I interviewed him uh, back in um, late March, and that kind of dried up during the ban period. But I still was able to get scoops and figure out what's going on when I could. So even even with that blacklist, and and obviously you know that's that's now over. But but you've I mean you've spent as you just described so much of the last six to twelve months following what you know what you just called the Trump network. You know, call it Trump world. I mean, and from everything that those of us outside here, you know, what we hear about the crowds and the wild comments and the you know the multiple campaign managers and the seat of his pants campaign decisions and the lack of the ground game and the backbiting, which, you know, occurs, I, I know, in every campaign. I mean, is it as insane as it sounds? I mean, this isn't the first campaign you've covered. How, how would you characterize, you know, how would you characterize Trump world? Trump world is a lot different than most of the other worlds you cover for most politicians because, you know, a politician comes up through the ranks. They got time in the Congress or maybe they've been a governor or secretary of state. And what's most different from the start when you really start mapping out how you're going to cover Trump is that he doesn't have a donor network in the traditional sense. So usually donors are great sources on a presidential campaign because they're talking to the candidate. They're at the private events. They have access to the advisors. Uh, but with Trump, he doesn't really have a big donor network. He has some. He has some close friends like the private equity guy Tom Barrick in California and Carl Icahn, the famed investor. But beyond a, a handful of of guys in the New York Wall Street scene, they're not donors that are really at Trump's side. And so who, who who's at Trump's side? You got his family, you got his advisors, you got his political associates, the Roger Stones of the world. And then you just start mapping out a different kind of ecosystem. It's a different jungle than your normal political campaign. And I want to ask you about the the money and the funding, because I think that – and you've reported on that aspect of the Republican Party historically and, and, and really the changes and what's going on there, I, I think – and I you know want to get your insights on this – really go to the heart of, you know, what is the Republican Party today and what's its status and, and you know, what's going to happen next. But but just, just before we get there, just to kind of continue on, on this idea. So if there is this different kind of – world, Trump world. And look, I mean, he, you know, he's one of two people left standing for the presidency of the United States. Um, have you 
created kind of a narrative in your mind? I mean, how, how are you framing this election? I mean, we, we hear, you know, Trump erraticness or, or, you know, the racial dog whistles versus Hillary trustworthiness or her likability and, you know, Trump being underprepared versus, you know, is Hillary overprepared and, and, you know, does capability even really matter? Is that something that, that matters, you know, in a day when people think that government, you know, so many people think that government messes up everything anyhow, does, you know, does capability matter? Have you created in your own mind kind of an overarching narrative for presidential election 2016? I have. Uh, The way I see Trump in the election generally is that this is not a normal election along the right-left divide, that Secretary Clinton is of the left and Trump generally is of the right. But really, I see Trump as a non-ideological figure. He's breaking the norms of the Republican Party. He's not someone who on trade, on foreign policy, on so many fronts is really a traditional Republican. And he's making the the consensus post-Ronald Reagan's presidency. When Ronald Reagan leaves the White House in 89, he really set the bar for a kind of ideological Republican that would come to dominate Congress with Newt Gingrich and influence George W. Bush's presidency. Low taxes, intervention abroad, now that was really amplified, of course, by George W. Bush. But th- that hawkish impulse, tax cuts, Wall Street friendly, corporate friendly, that was the Republican Party of the last 20, 30 years. And Trump waltzed in and he, f- he found some cracks in this consensus. And by running as a populist, non-ideological outsider, who in many ways adopted Democratic-leaning positions on things like trade and entitlement reform, he, he has made Republicans start to really think about who actually are Republicans, who, who's part of that party, what, what does it mean to be a Republican? And I think in that sense, Trump's been a fresh force in American politics because he, he's changed what we saw in 2012, which was such a traditional Romney, the business guy versus the Democratic president. And in 2008, the, the Republican senator who wants to go bomb, bomb, bomb Iran and the, the hawk with McCain versus a, a Democratic, a traditional liberal in, in Obama. Uh, of course, a historic candidate, but really with his policies, progressive left in a, in a, in a not really unusual way. And is that where the communist as you as you see what he's done and what he's doing and what he represents is is that where the country is? Are you feeling? I mean, is he kind of a, a, a you know a statement as to where we are? Is he a statement as to where the Republican Party is as an entity, or or is it that he did find, in your words, you know those those cracks? I mean, I'm trying to I'm I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm trying to figure out kind of like which came first. Did the cracks come, right. and and you know, or or did Trump come first? And and uh, you, how how are you looking at it? I think I don't know. I'm curious how you see this. I think that uh, Trump is a statement candidate in a way of the culture at large, and a lot of the voters I meet. I, I, I don't see this as a, a cult of personality campaign. There are some hardcore Trump fans I've met out there on the campaign trail, but this isn't a, a Trump movement. I mean, Trump's at the head of a movement, but when you look beyond Trump, what does the movement really represent? And to me, so many voters, hundreds, thousands of voters I've met, uh, seem to fall into a general camp. Whether they're a Trump supporter or a Bernie Sanders supporter, they're they're in some ways disengaged from civic life. Maybe they voted in the last election. Maybe they haven't voted for 15 years. Those are the most interesting voters, or 20 years. They've lost faith in political institutions. They've lost faith in financial institutions. Uh, 
whether they even if they like the way the culture is going in, in terms of becoming more accepting on numerous fronts, in some ways they may feel disengaged from the culture on some level. They're isolated uh, economically. They they feel stalled. And so some of them have drifted toward the Bernie Sanders progressive wing of American politics, but other of them have come to Trump. And I think one of the reasons Trump was able to win the nomination and has a shot at the White House still is because he represents not only the, the hardcore people who are kind of conservative or populist and, and really frustrated, but he's connected with suburban voters, more traditional Republican voters who say the system has a certain sickness to it in their view. The system's become corrupted, whether it's by money or it's just become sclerotic politically uh, in terms of the, what the GOP's principles are. And so all these swirling forces have lifted Trump's boat and, and kept him afloat, even as he makes mistake after mistake uh, on, uh, on some weeks, and, and he's not really as well organized as Clinton or he's not in the airways. These forces keep him going, and they may propel him to the White House, they may not, but they've made him and what he represents part of this national conversation in a vibrant way. Yeah, I, I agree with so much of what you've just said. I mean, I don't think this stuff happens by accident at all. And, and what you're saying about um, you know, institutions and the lack of trust. It's not just political institutions. You know, it's 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 business institutions. And uh, you know, there, there's for so long we we kind of you know voters have been told, uh, you know, well put your faith in the institute, whatever that institution is. And people are kind of looking up after uh, you know Iraq wars and uh, you know uh, econ- economic downfalls and and you know tough times. And like, well, wait a minute, you know who you know who actually. Uh, prospered here. And I think that lack of uh, diminishing trust or questioning of the trust in institutions, um, I, I agree, is is driving a lot of that. And, and so when you talk to the money folks, and they're getting back to what you were saying earlier, and that, you know, the, the people who, who finance the Republican Party, the people who have a, you know, this, this, you know, financial stake in the game and the livelihood of something that, and even if you take all cynicism out of it, and, and I, I do take a lot, I mean, they believe in it. You know, I, I do think people who are, who are giving their time and energy and money to, to something like that, it's not just you know, it's not just cynicism. They they believe in it. What are they saying to you? What 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 are you hearing about what they feel is kind of quote happening to their party? Um, are they? Is it is it is it angst, depression, panic? Where, where are they? I mean, a lot of angst because especially during the primary, so many of them gave to Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and different candidates and. The way they've lived their lives politically was a little more transactional. They had an expectation, even if you believed in the Republican Party and you believed in the candidate, you were maybe putting yourself in line to be an ambassador, or you were helping your company become more cozy with an upcoming administration. I mean, there was this. As much as some of these donors are true blue believers, there was a transactional element and there was a power element that if you bought in. You got a, chi- a, sh- a chip of power. You didn't get everything. You weren't the most influential person in the candidate circle, but you got some sway. And with Trump ignoring, in many respects, big donors, he's been doing some more fundraising now to try to compete with Clinton. But ha- not having donors at his side all the time has, I think, made donors ha- have to rethink wh- where can they go for influence. And so Trump has kind of wiped the board of big donors on the presidential level in some respects. And then you see a lot of these donors now, the big ones, are going heavy into the Senate races, in- into the congressional races. In part, that's because they may think Trump – is uh, looking at a, a, possibly a landslide defeat. 
against Secretary Clinton, but they also see in the Senate candidates a chance for them to get back to their normal playing field, a chance for the donors to do what donors do, which is to go to private events, to meet with powerful people, a lot of money pouring into these GOP Senate races. The Dallas Morning News, two editorials in the last two days and, and talking about, you know, Republicanism and, and Trump and, and the state of the Republican Party. Um, how, how Were you surprised at all by, by the editorials, the one, you know, two days ago that said uh, Trump is no Republican? And then, of course, uh, today to timestamp this conversation, um, endorsing Hillary Clinton. I mean, Texas has been such a Republican state. For the last 30, 40 years, ever since Karl Rove started remaking the GOP down there, it's pretty stunning to see the Dallas Morning News sense something in the air to sense that the country and Texas, the stronghold of GOP politics, could be open to something more. We've seen Democrats really struggle in Texas, but now possibly to come in the next decade. You see Texas demographics are changing rapidly, a rise in the Latino population. But there's, this is still the state that elected Ted Cruz senator not long ago, so there is a deep conservative streak in the state. Uh, what, what do you make of the editorials and, and the back-to-back nature of them? Well, I, I think that it's a, you know, it, it's a statement as to where the Republican Party is going. And, and I, you know, it's hard to get more Republican establishment from a editorial board point of view than an editorial board that for the last 75 years has endorsed the Republican candidate for president. I mean, you know, LBJ ran for president and, uh, you know, they didn't endorse, uh, Democrats since before, uh, World War II, I think it is. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering the same thing that you are and the same thing that we, you know, we were discussing regarding, uh, you know, which came first, Trump or, or the cracks in the, you know, in the, the system. Um, you know, which is coming first? Is it, as you're stating, you know, the, the morning news, reading what's going on and sensing what's happening in Texas? And I, I'll ask you in a second about the Washington Post poll, which had some, you know, came out uh, last night, I guess it was uh, early this morning and, and, you know, made a little bit of news around Texas in particular. Um, but, you know, just a question of w- w- what's first? Are they seeing what's happening? Um, uh, you know, I, I, or are they, you know, putting out a little bit of a, of a warning to, to voters? And, um, you know, that, that's, that's really the question. Again, I, I keep coming back. I, I don't think this stuff happens by accidents. I mean, there's no better public opinion poll in, in a country than every four years on the first Tuesday of November. I, I mean, we get a real snapshot of, of, you know, who we are on, on that day, I feel. And, uh, you know, this is, it's a, that's, I, th- I think the Dallas Morning News stuff was a, was a big deal. Um, speaking of uh, big deals, perhaps, uh, the Washington Post poll, uh, it was a 50-state poll, I guess the largest sample uh, that the Post has ever uh, undertaken. Um, how, how close, first of all, how close are you to that? Do you hear about it when everyone else does? Do you get any kind of sneak peek? When, when did you hear uh, about the poll or, or I guess more specifically the results? Uh, I had heard it was in the works, and the Post has a good relationship with SurveyMonkey, yeah. the company that does these online polls. And so it's an ambitious project to really try to get uh, the right methodology with an online poll because everyone's always a little suspect of online polls, but trying to get uh, work with a great company and get it to a methodology so me- methodology that people feel comfortable with and they can cite. And, and I think with so many voters, thousands and thousands of voters participating, there are, of course, going to be some – not errors, but there'll be some uh, outliers, and maybe not every state's exactly how it's going to end up in November or close to it. 
Uh, but Texas, the the way the race was so tight in Texas, I think it, when we're talking about the Dallas Morning News editorial, you just sense because Trump is in a way breaking up the Republican Party, maybe it's making some of these places around the country that are really were always uncontested GOP pl- uh, homes and hotbeds for the last few decades to think maybe maybe there's something afoot there. Maybe it doesn't happen immediately, but these, these states have changed. I mean, you think about California. And everyone says, oh, it's such a liberal state. I mean, this is a state that also elected Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. And uh, states change uh, over time. Yeah, it, it will be very interesting after the election to look back, and particularly on this poll. I'm sure, uh, you know, everyone at SurveyMonkey and the Washington Post is as well, because some of those findings, you know, about some of the places where, you know, Trump may be struggling, you know, Arizona, Georgia, Texas, places that, you know, traditionally, obviously, um, you know, very, uh, you know, would, would be going Republican. Um, Georgia, I guess, has been a little bit, uh, you know, not as much as, as, as say, Arizona. Um, but it will be interesting to look back and say, wait a minute, did, you know, was this right, what, what this, you know, the SurveyMonkey Washington Post poll found? Or, you know, was there something about it that, uh, you, know, you know, did they find the outliers, you know, before everyone else did or, or a lot of folks did? How, how do you, you know, as you think about your reporting and, and you know, framing and, you know, creating an overall narrative and, and how you try to make sense of things, um, how do you, you know, do you look at overall polling numbers? I mean, obviously you look at them, you see them, I mean, but does that, how does that drive your thinking or, you know, the overall electoral college projections, or do you instead look at X number of battleground states? And, and are you kind of more like, look, I, I don't care what's going on in, in, you know, all these other places, I, you know, I'm going to look at, you know, five battleground states, and that's going to really drive my thinking. How, how do you look at polling and, and electoral college numbers and opinion polls and, and that sort of thing? Well, I think you got to look at both the states and national. I think national polls do matter because they, they give you a sense of where the national winds are blowing. They're not everything because when you look at some of these national polls, Trump has a huge mountain to climb. And then you look at some of the swing states, you look at North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and you say, oh, well, they're not really mountains to climb. He has a, he has a bunch of small hills because some of these races are pretty tight. Uh, but I think uh, when when you talk to how pollsters look at it and how Trump people look at it, you know Trump does have to change the national polls as much as he has to start catching up in some of these individual states. Um, I, I keep a look at a lot of the Senate races and and versus the national candidates. So you look at a state like Ohio, Rob Portman's doing very well, and he he was supposed to have a tough race. Now the Democratic candidate, former Governor Strickland isn't running as strong a campaign as some Democrats would have hoped. But you, you wonder yourself, okay, so Portman's doing something right in Ohio. He's ahead by a significant margin. Trump's much, of course, tighter in Ohio, sometimes behind in the polls, often behind in the polls. So it's possible for Republican to win in this environment in Ohio, uh, but Trump's not doing it. What could he change? How could he maybe echo Portman's campaign? So you got to look at a lot of different things, uh, not just how Trump's doing here or Trump's doing there. And and as you're looking at the House and the Senate, do you see things lately coming back a little bit uh, for the Republicans? I mean, you know, the vibe seems to have been recently, you know, House still Republican, but but tightening Senate, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But but pretty much, you know, is a lot of people thinking 50 50, even potentially, you know, seeing a route for uh, a, a path. Um, you know, for for Democrats to to take the Senate, um, I know you do spend a lot of time thinking about uh, Congress. What, what are you seeing there? 
I think the House question has always been one that's floated around this election. Is the House in play or not? And when you talk to people in the House now, they say, well, if Trump really falls apart, there's a chance the House goes. But because of the, all the redistricting that happened after 2010, the census, the Republicans are in a pretty favorable position in the House until 2020. So I think Ryan feels pretty safe. Uh, I spoke to Ryan a couple weeks ago and he uh, in an interview for The Post, and he said he felt pretty comfortable. He wasn't trying to talk down his chances of keeping the majority. But I think a lot of House members are nervous. Senators, of course, much more nervous. It's a narrow margin for the Senate majority. Uh, and Democrats in a state like North Carolina, Richard Burr's in a tough race. Roy Blunt's in a tough race. Pat Toomey, and, and really the people who are in very tough races are Toomey in Pennsylvania, Kirk in Illinois, Ayotte in New Hampshire running against the incumbent governor for Senate. Uh, so Republicans are looking at least probably to lose two to four seats, if not five, six, seven. What was it like? Did you – talking with Ryan, did you get to ask him at all about – have you talked to him? I mean when I look at Ryan, I'm like – I'm just wondering how are you walking this line, man? I mean he is he, – he supports Trump kind of. He does, but he kind of doesn't in a really big way, but he does. But he, you know, he, he, he hasn't, you know, not said he's not supporting him. Um, he's obviously got to walk the line, uh, you know, because he's got to, you know, keep Senate, keep House, um, and potentially keep his own, you know, future and, and presidential aspirations intact. Have you had a chance, have you had a conversation with him about, you know, the line, the political line that he's having to walk this uh, this season, I, we got into it a little bit, and I've spoken to a lot of Ryan's friends about this and about how he sees it. I think when you look at Ryan, he's someone who, who grew up at Jack Kemp's knee as an advisor to Kemp when Kemp was at Empower America think tank. He was a House staffer, he was a Senate staffer, uh, mostly in the Senate. He was worked for Bob Caston and Sam Brownback. Uh, I think when Ryan sees himself as an institutional man. And the same way John Boehner did, when you become speaker, you're not just Paul Ryan anymore who's acting on behalf of Paul Ryan. You're speaking on behalf of all House Republicans. And that puts Ryan in a corner in some ways because he has to represent hundreds and hundreds of House Republicans who may not be able to deal with a speaker who's aligned against the presidential nominee. Uh, that, that could complicate the political lives for people who whose support he needs uh, to, to keep the gavel and to keep his majority and so you see Ryan as someone who's very much of the conservative movement, has cultivated relationships on the right for years, yet he's not just a conservative anymore, Speaker of the House. And so he's he's doing what it's in a sense expected. He's disappointed some of his friends because they say, you know, this isn't who Paul Ryan is. He's someone who'd much rather be on the sidelines in, in some ways, uh, be, being principled in, in, as he sees it. Uh, but now he finds himself in a leadership position, and it's not always easy to be a leader. Yeah, I, th that story, you know, McConnell. I mean, what what the 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 line that these guys are trying to walk and having to walk pull it in, as you said, you know, they're in leadership roles. Um, I, for me, that's one of the the fascinating kind of you know stories or side storylines of of the campaign. Um, before I let you go, I just want to you know, coming up the next kind of must see appointment political watching event, obviously um, the debates. And, uh, um, you know, I'm curious what you're hearing about uh, Trump's debate preparations, if, if anything. I mean, you had a story, I think it was about 10 days ago, headlined uh, Inside Debate Prep, 
Clinton's careful case versus Trump's WrestleMania. Um, you may not have written the headline, of course, but uh, um, is is it is WrestleMania? Is that what you're hearing in terms of the debate prep? It's more like country club mania <laughs> because Trump's hanging out at Bedminster Country Club in New Jersey. And that's where he has his weekend retreat. He goes there often on Sundays, gathers Laura Ingram, the talk radio host, uh, Rudy Giuliani, his advisors, Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, his kids, Eric, Don, and Ivanka. Uh, sometimes his wife, Melania, is there with a young son, Baron. And so he, and of course, he has another daughter, Tiffany, but she's not really involved in this from what I hear on the prep side. So the family's hanging out. The advisors are hanging out. The friends are there for Trump. And he doesn't like to do mock debates. Uh, Ingram uh, was mentioned, floated as a possible Hillary Clinton stand-in, and that hasn't really come to pass yet. Uh, and Trump's someone who does just kind of, he talks, sits there at the center of a room, surrounded by a dozen people, hamburgers, hot dogs, sodas. Trump doesn't drink. Talking through politics, talking through issues, taking shots at Clinton. That's debate prep for Trump. Not usually how debate prep's done. You, look, you talk to the Clinton people. They have a whole process, and people have been involved for years in different campaigns, uh, stand-ins, different kinds of secrecy involved. With Trump, it's just a much more uh, lack of structure. And uh, we'll see how that pays off because you talk to presidential veterans, campaign veterans. They say debate prep's everything. You have to be ready to take any shot that comes. You can't be losing your cool. You have to have some answers in your head. So you can navigate in other fronts. So that's that's uh, it's going to be a test for Trump, the biggest audience yet. And, and I mean, I hear that advice that you just talked about that that the you know old you know hands and the people who have done this for years and 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 yet you know it was really I think to such a large extent. And, and obviously, I'm curious about your point of view. I mean, Trump in the the Republican primary debates that was I mean his whole style, obviously you know for better and quite often you know for worse in terms of the civility of discourse. Um, I mean. That's where he differentiated himself. That's where he, you know, that's where it really became clear. This is not politics or business or or anything as usual. And and I kind of find myself wondering, well, I mean, should he stop that? Why, why would he stop that now? Right. I mean, and he loves unpredictability. He loves the art of surprise. I've spoken to him about this. I mean, he thinks I before the primary debates, I used to run into Trump and his people before debates, and they'd say Trump's just going to go up there and, in essence, wing it. Do his thing. Um, that's just who he is. I think when you look at the history of Trump, you read the histories of Trump, and, and you recognize that one of the seminal moments of his life was when he was host of NBC's The Apprentice. And it was a reality show, and most reality shows are scripted. But The Apprentice was the rare reality show that didn't have much scripting. Trump himself prided himself on not being scripted, and he thought that made it better TV, better ratings. And so he's applied that thinking, that mentality to the presidential race. And uh, is finally, what, what what's next, Bob? I mean, you, you you broke the Mexico, the Trump to Mexico story. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I think you broke the bossy uh, story, yeah, as well. Um, what, what's next? I mean, you, you don't need to break everything just by you know in print on the Washington Post. You can break some stuff here right now. <laughs> what 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 do you, what do you got for us? Well, I mean, I'm really just trying to keep tabs on how Trump's going to build out his organization, what the RNC is up to, what different politicians are going to do for Trump. Uh, Trump's debate prep. Uh, I think Trump's going to take some more trips. I think that's going to be an area to break some news. He went to Baton Rouge under the guidance of his new advisors, Conway and Bannon. Uh, he think he's been mentioning a possible trip to Flint, Michigan. 
he, he's been going, he's in Philadelphia today. He, he went to Detroit. So you see Trump trying to sh- showcase himself as a, a person who can go to urban areas and, and have sub- sub- substantial conversations and, and not be skittish. Um, and so he's been doing that to, we'll see to what effect. And so what I'm always looking at is what are people doing? What's Trump thinking? Uh, he's unpredictable, but you have to always kind of think he wants to make a big statement. That's who he, he, he is. He loves political theater. He likes combat. He's always in war mode. And so if you put all those things on your, your notepad and you say, well, okay, if he wants to fight or if he wants to make a grand statement, if he wants to grab headlines, what would he do? Uh, and the Mexico story was really interesting because we had gotten some tips from Mexico about Trump, maybe Trump people poking around about a possible Mexico trip. And I said, well, that's that to me is classic Trump. And you know, at first, most people wouldn't believe it. They say that that can't be happening. It's a strange, strange idea. But I said that no, that's classic Trump. And so I started digging on that and it took a long time to piece it together. But we got it. Yeah, you got it. Is right. Is this? A, I mean, just hearing you tell that story. Um, is this a fun one for you? I mean, are you enjoying this ride? It's not your first ride. I mean, on a scale of... It's you not going to get any more weird, I think, than this. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the strangest election. You got a a character in Clinton who we've all known for 30, 40 years yeah. as a major figure in American life. And, you know, that carries some positives for it. It carries some negatives, and it makes her a titan in her own right. And Trump... And someone who just comes in with a, a sledgehammer to the Republican Party and uh, really is clashing with the press, his own party, his own advisors, always fighting. Uh, it's just been wild. And it's been good as a reporter to not just cover the so-called drama, but to see that politics can come alive. That it's not Because I've become a little miffed about reporting in some respects for a couple of years. I, I, I can't stand the way in, how politics at some level has become talking points and having to go through three press secretaries or agreeing to a seven-minute interview with a candidate. I mean, it's just becoming a way. I, I, I don't want to cover corporations. I don't want to cover Hollywood. That's what the reporters have to deal with Hollywood. I mean, the best thing I always thought about political reporting is you go to the Capitol and stick a microphone in a senator's face. And it felt somewhat real. Maybe the senator wouldn't have uh, something unscripted to say, but at least you could have that access. You could go up to him. And presidential campaigns, especially in 2012, you just never got really access to the candidate. Everything was kind of packaged. And, you know, that's just kind of a depressing way to, to live life as a reporter. So this election has been wild and, and weird, and that's okay by me. Well, that's great. It's good stuff uh, for those of us who uh, follow you. Thank you. Thanks uh, for the reporting. And, uh, and and for the time, I hope for more wild stuff uh, for you and from you. I'm sure. I'm sure there will be. Uh, I don't have to cause it. It just co- it just comes. It just you follows gotta, you. <laughs> it's a wave. Got to ride it. All okay. right. Thanks a lot, Thank Bob. You. Yeah. Bye. bye. Wasn't that good stuff? I loved Bob's comments at the end. You really get the sense of what drives him. Why he chose to be a reporter in the first place. He also sounds like he's having fun. It's a wild ride. I, you know, I meant to ask him if he's already got the book contract on the 2016 campaign. I hope so. I know I'll read it. Anyhow, my thanks again to Bob Costa for joining and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Mm-hmm.